if you died tonight and Jesus asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Uh, It's quite a common question that is asked in courses like Christianity Explored uh, as people consider what it means uh, to be a Christian. Uh, It's a great question because it gets right to the heart uh, of whether someone has really understood the Christian message or not. Uh, It's really asking, who will enter God's kingdom and why? Is it about how religious I am? Is it about uh, my moral performance? Is it about how sincere I am? Or something else? Who will enter God's kingdom and why? Now, the the basic assumption of most people in most places uh, is whatever the criteria is, that they will basically be okay. At funerals, people assure one another, he's in a better place, she's with God now, Uh, his suffering is over. The default perception that we have is uh, no matter what religion or uh, how good a person was, that somehow they're all going to end up uh, okay. Uh, God will welcome anyone who is sincere and moral. Well, Jesus is going to challenge that view quite strongly this evening. We pick up Luke chapters 14 to 19. Luke told us in chapter 1, Uh, that he is uh, writing eyewitness testimony. Uh, He's personally checked the facts himself. Uh, He's arranged them into an orderly account. And his goal, he tells us, is that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Uh, He wants us to know for certain that the gospel is true. And his goal, as we come to the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, it ends with a call to worldwide mission. He wants us to be so certain that Jesus is the resurrected King that we will go out and proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. The first nine chapters really deal largely with the identity of Jesus. The conclusion is reached in chapter 9, verse 20. Next line. That Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter recognizes rightly that Jesus is is the promised one, God's absolute universal king who will rule all nations forever. And And Jesus explains that he's come on a rescue mission. He's going to die on the cross to to save people from their sins. And so in chapter 9, verse 51, a great turning point, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem beginning a journey that he knows is going to end in his death. And along the way, he begins teaching. Chapters 10 to 13, he teaches the disciples uh, about the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? About what to expect in their mission? About how to live rightly in the light of the coming judgment day? And, And the repeated call again and again in those chapters is that we need to repent, that we need to turn around, leave our old life behind and submit to Jesus as King and Saviour before it is too late. And now as we come to chapters 14 to 19, the question then becomes, who will enter the kingdom? You see the topic introduced uh, at uh, the end of chapter 13. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 23 on the screen. 
someone asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And and Jesus continues, uh, people will will say to God, we ate and drank in your presence. You you taught in our streets. But, But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and, and as this section begins, Jesus lays out very clearly, there is one way to God. There is a narrow door. Some people will not enter it. In fact, many will not enter it, a few only. And there is a place of eternal judgment. And as we enter chapter 14, another banquet, another guarantee, a gathering of of, of moral, upright religious leaders who who think that they're going to be in, the message comes back the same. Verse 24 of our passage, Jesus says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus' point, there will be people who think that they are going to heaven and they will not. not. Not because they haven't been invited, but because they have refused the invitation of Jesus. And this chapter is helping us to understand why they're not in. To summarize, beneath the, the slim veneer or outward sign of religion is a life of hard-hearted hypocrisy, Proud, praise-seeking, self-serving snobbery, and pathetic excuses. Well, the first one, hard-hearted hypocrisy. Verse 1, on one Sabbath, when uh, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, notice how carefully Luke sets up this incident for us. Jesus is dining with a ruler of the Pharisees. They're the the religious, the the moral elite of Jesus' day, upright and respected. And yet throughout Luke's gospel, we know that the Pharisees have been in hostility against Jesus. Uh, On the screen, chapter 11, verse 53, we read the scribes and the Pharisees began to press Jesus hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They're just getting ready to attack. Secondly, we note verse 1, this happens on the Sabbath day. And and that has been the key point of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees so far. In fact, this is the fourth incident they have fought over this. We're meant to recall an almost identical conflict in just the previous chapter. Uh, Chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, there Jesus heals a woman who has been disabled for 18 years. And the synagogue ruler, more concerned that Jesus has done it on the Sabbath than that this woman has been healed of this awful suffering, he proceeds to lecture her and the crowds for coming to Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus gives this firm rebuke. You hypocrites, does Uh, Next slide. You hypocrites, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And so you see the stage is set. Dinner with the hostile Pharisees. On the Sabbath, and there happens to be a man with dropsy right before Jesus. They're watching carefully. The trap is set. You notice Jesus isn't too bothered that he is a dinner guest at this party. I mean, faced with such blatant hypocrisy, Jesus has no intention of being polite. He confronts them head on. Have a look, verse 3. Jesus responds, Is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath or not, but they remained silent. Now, now that question really exposes the the, the callousness of their hearts. Here is a man with dropsy. Uh, It's a terrible uh, disease where your your limbs and your, your, your flesh swells with excessive body fluid. It's very painful. And here are these, these, these upright, moral, religious teachers who would rather use that man's suffering as a tool to condemn Jesus on the Sabbath day than embrace the healing and the blessing that this person needs and to which the Sabbath day ultimately pointed. As Jesus asked the question, their silence exposes the cold-hearted lovelessness of their hearts. Religion on the outside, but inside corrupt, cold, callous. If they really loved God, wouldn't they not love this man, their neighbor? Surely that was what the law was meant to teach them. Well, Jesus is not done with exposing their hypocrisy. Verse 4, Jesus takes the man and heals him and sends him away. Once again, Jesus gives a a living proof of his authority and identity as the Christ. Jesus, so far in the gospel, he's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's he's driven out demons and more. Uh, All miracles showing his power, showing that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one appointed by God to, to usher in the perfect kingdom of God where finally all sickness and all suffering and all death will one day be ended. And here they see another living testimony right before their eyes of the identity of Jesus. And they reject it outright. He exposes them, verse 5. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. I mean, can you imagine it? You're, you, know, you're, you have your five-year-old child, falls into a well, and then the, you know, the Pharisee comes over. Oh, sorry, it's, it's the Sabbath day. Can you wait there till tomorrow? You know, I'd give you some food and a blanket, but I can't lift them up. Uh, of course, that's what the, no one would do that. Jesus assumes if it was their son that needed rescue, indeed, if it was their cow that needed rescue, they would be there in a moment, but that is their religion. Double standards, hypocrisy, corruption, and Jesus sees right through it. 
Here they would rather treat an animal better than this man with, with dropsy just to, to justify their stubborn rejection of Jesus. And verse 6, they could not reply to these things. The silence confirms their guilt. They are condemned. Not the point of this incident should be absolutely clear. No matter how respectable or, or, or religious someone may appear on the outside, uh, any person who adheres to any form of religion that, that refuses to acknowledge the authority of Jesus and the rule of Jesus as the Son of God, well, far from being, being moral, far from being good, it is actually corrupt. It is actually cold and callous and calculating and keeping people out of what they need the most to come into contact with Jesus. And such a person, as much as they may think otherwise that God accepts them, stands outside of the kingdom of God. And a little bit of exposure by Jesus and you can see the hypocrisy and you can see the failure. They should have repented and turned to Jesus. But now their guilt is plain to see. Well, Luke's goal, as we uh, see the Pharisees here, is to reflect on our own failure, our own tendency to reject God's rule so that we will not be like the Pharisees. Uh, there's always a, a tendency to have this air of outward religion. And here is the warning. Jesus sees straight through it. He wants the heart. He wants you to submit to him. Well, Jesus isn't finished. Rather than turning down the heat at this dinner, he's just stacking the flames. So now he turns on the guests, the proud, praise-seeking guests. Look at verse 7 with me. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move higher up higher, then you'll be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, as Jesus looks around at this uh, dinner party, uh, he sees their arrogance vying for position. They're all fighting for honour. Uh, of course, it could be any workplace, really, or any uh, university campus, or any New Year's uh, family gathering, as, uh, as people make it their, their sole purpose as they gather to try to win the praise and the respect of, of one another as they jostle for position. I remember some uh, years back, uh, my wife and I went to a wedding banquet. We were there to help uh, on the registration table. Uh, and there was a guest that came in. We'll call him Mr. Lim. And we said, you know, welcome, Mr. Lim. You're on table 46. And he replied, that's Dr. Lim. Thank you very much. And we saw 
the extent of his arrogance. But that same kind of praise-seeking boasting is all around. Uh, We boast of our achievements on Facebook. We name-drop the important people that we meet. We uh, put badges on our cars to remind people of how important we are. We obsess over what titles uh, that we have accumulated. We attend uh, a wedding ceremony, and all we're thinking about is which order we are in the photo shoot, or we attend the banquet, and we're thinking how close we are to the front, or is that just me? (laughs) And it can easily bubble over into church life as well, as we we, we serve in a ministry in the hope that we're going to attract recognition and honour. We're asked to take on a leadership position, and all we're thinking is, wow, they chose me for the job. That is the reason why at SMAC, whether you walk in as a datuk or a pastor or a baby, I guess the babies don't walk in, Maybe Hui Chen's baby is very, very talented. (laughs) That is why whoever you are as you came in, you are addressed by your first name because uh, whatever you are outside of the church, inside of the church, we are all the same. We are sinners needing forgiveness from Jesus. Now, of course, it's right that we give honour to those to whom honour is due. That's not Jesus' point. The point here is when we vainly seek after honour, competing with other people for the praise of our peers, thinking that I'm more important than you in my arrogance. And that kind of attitude, exemplified by the Pharisees, stands in rank opposition to Jesus might remember Philippians chapter 2. It's up on the screen. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we see the humility of Jesus. Although he was fully divine, the second person of the Trinity, living in eternal glory with the Father, he willingly emptied himself and took on human flesh. Though Jesus was was the Christ, God's absolute universal king, he he was willing to humble himself to death on a cross, to embrace the shame, embrace the rejection, embrace the scorn, as he looked not to his own interests, but to the interests of Others, There is no doubt at this dinner banquet who should be sitting in the place of honour. It should be Jesus. But he is denied it by these proud, (coughs) self-righteous Pharisees. But Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of God is a place of reversals. 
And in the end, God will see that justice is done and we get what we deserve. You see it there summarized in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, on that final judgment day when Jesus returns in glory, uh, all who are like who, like the Pharisees, have have exalted themselves and puffed themselves up in proud praise-seeking, they will be brought low. They will be shamed and judged and destroyed. And yet those who, like Jesus, embrace humility will be exalted. Remember how Philippians 2 finishes. Because Jesus humbles himself and takes on human flesh, because Jesus humbles himself even to the point of death on a cross, verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him so that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. God will see that justice is done. In the end, the proud will be brought low. The humble will be exalted. And of course, it's it's only as I turn to Jesus in humility, recognizing my own wretchedness, recognizing my my total inability to possibly please God of uh, of my own strength, only then will I come to Jesus in humble trust, looking to him to rescue me. While I'm, a, while I'm still a, a proud, arrogant praise seeker like the Pharisees are, I will never come to Jesus. I will never think I need him. In fact, I will be angry with him for attacking my pride. Humility is the sign of the true disciple of Jesus. And one of the ways we can tell if someone has truly humbled themselves under the loving rule of Jesus is whether they live in humble service of others. Are we willing to take the lowest place? Are we willing to serve and do the jobs that no one else wants to do? Are we willing to go on serving when no one sees it And there is no appreciation. You can really tell a proud person when they're denied those things. They will get really angry that no one appreciated their ministry. Who are they trying to please? Are we willing to treat all people in the church the same, irrespective of race or role or rank, as I seek the glory of God and not the praise of people? Humility is the sign of the true disciple of Jesus Christ. And the proud, praise-seeking, Pharisaic-like person will be shut out of the kingdom. Well, I wonder if you can imagine at this point the stunned, uh, shocked looks of those at the dinner party, perhaps some muttering in the background. Wouldn't it be great to be there and, uh, and watch in? Well, at this point, if things were not awkward enough, Jesus now turns to the person who invited him and calls him a self-serving snob. 
Have a look at verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, again, Jesus uh, unmasks here something that is just so common in our hearts. We, we, we do things for other people so that they will do them back to us. Now, you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. Now, of course, uh, Jesus isn't uh, against us here having friends or inviting them over for dinner. But it's also true if the sum total of our hospitality is simply to build bridges with relatives and friends, especially the rich ones, and never the outsider and never the needy person, then that really just shows how insincere our hospitality really is. We're living for ourselves and our own benefit. True love, true hospitality will have compassion on the one in need and won't seek repayment for it. Now again, this attitude is embodied so wonderfully in the Lord Jesus who shared his meals with the spiritually poor, with tax collectors and prostitutes, who, who came and died on the cross for us while we were still sinners. And Jesus' aim here really is to, again, to unmask any kind of, of religious Pretense where we, we, we think that we can stand before God on our, on our own terms, rejecting Jesus and his, and his sacrifice and, and, and think that we're going to get to heaven on our own moral effort. Jesus says, just have a look at your hospitality, your self-seeking nature. You will be condemned. If we are a Christian who has truly experienced the, the, the gracious love of Jesus, then of course we know we could never repay him for what he's done. There on that cross, he, he, he paid that debt that we could never pay ourselves. And if we've ex truly experienced the love of Jesus in that way, then how could we not seek to, to emulate that love in, in the generosity and the kindness that we show to those who are really in need. Now, I think uh, Jesus' aim uh, in this passage is not to make Christians feel guilty, although I suspect many of us do. His goal really is to show why apart from coming to him in humble trust, going through the narrow door, all other religion, all other self-effort is a complete and total failure if you just dig a little below the surface. Our only hope of entering heaven is not our works, it is not our moral performance or our religious duties. We need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. 
Well, now the tension in the room is reaching breaking point, and this uh, one person can't take it anymore. He just bursts out, verse 15, he says, Well, oh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So he just uh, you know, said the first thing that came into his mind. Let's, uh, we're a bit negative at this dinner party. Let's, let's be a bit more positive, so we're all blessed, you know. And he's uh, picking up this uh, Old Testament description of the, of the kingdom of God as a wedding banquet. Uh, we read of it in, in our passage from Isaiah 25. Isaiah prophesies, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, the reproach of his people. He will take away from the earth. And there in that, that prophecy, uh, heaven is described as this, this wonderful wedding banquet where God's people will be gathered again, uh, rescued from their enemies to eat with him in joyful fellowship, in a whole renewed creation, where death has been swallowed up forever, where tears and pain are a thing of the past, where God himself wipes the tears from our eyes. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Now, the Bible would have us think then of the, of the best 10-course banquet that we could with all the joy and the celebration and the food and the friendship and then multiply it by infinity. And there is the joy of heaven. But notice the assumption of this person as he pipes up in the dinner party. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's assuming that he and everyone else in the room is going to be there. And Jesus thinks otherwise. And so refusing to back off, show a bit of face, Jesus digs in his heels with one more parable to condemn the religious leaders. Have a look at verse 16. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now let me tell you about banquets in the first century. Uh, apparently they didn't have refrigeration in the first century and no Facebook either. So if you are going to have a, uh, a party, you can make your Facebook event for people to not reply to. You'd have to send out your invitations by foot. People would RSVP. Then you'd go away, prepare the meal, and uh, when it was all ready, then you'd send them out a second time with a notice to come because it is all ready. And so the people in this parable, they've already been invited They've already said that they are coming, but when the time comes and the banquet is ready, all they have is a series of pathetic excuses why they're not coming. You see them there in verse 18. They all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Now, each of those excuses is just so lame, isn't it? I mean, would anyone here uh, seriously go and buy a house that you have never inspected before? You know, just look online and say, oh, yeah, I'll buy that, 500000 Oh, you put in a big, enormous uh, investment, um, not maybe five yoke of oxen, I don't know, whatever it is for your business, and you don't try it out first? Uh, of course you would. And even if you did purchase them first without checking it out, surely you could go to the banquet and then check it out when you got home? The third excuse, that one's the most pathetic, isn't it? I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. You know, so within a couple of days of him RSVPing, he's found a wife, he's got married, and he can't bring the wife with him to the wedding banquet. The real reason is obvious. They just don't want to come. The lame excuses are just code for saying, you're not that important to me. Now, it took me a while to get used to this in Malaysian culture, where if someone says, yes, I'm coming, they mean maybe. <laughs> and if they say maybe, they mean no. <laughs> and if they say no, they mean I really don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> but Jesus makes it really clear here, isn't he? That when he says that the door is narrow, that many are going to seek to enter it, but they're not going to get in, the reason why anyone misses out is not because of a lack of invitation, simply a refusal to accept it because of a series of lame excuses. The original application is, of course, to the Jews. They had invitation after invitation in the Old Testament. God had sent prophet after prophet, promising God's, his, God's Messiah was coming, and when Jesus turns up for dinner at their house, they want no part in it. They reject him. Their hard-hearted hypocrisy, their proud self-seeking, their self-serving snobbery, their pathetic excuses. They should have worshipped Jesus. They should have welcomed Jesus. They should have got on their knees in repentance, turned from their man-made religion, and placed him at the honor seat of their lives. And it ought to be a warning to us, I think. Perhaps there are those of us here this evening who are, who are yet to turn to Jesus as the King and Savior of our life. And it may well be that you've been making some excuses why you will not follow Jesus. Perhaps like these people, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm building my career. I don't have time to investigate all these things. I need to make money and make my life secure. My parents wouldn't allow it anyway. Or there's that boyfriend or, or girlfriend or, or spouse, and they're much more important to me than Jesus. I'll think about it later. Friends, that is a very serious thing. And we must not overlook it. Look at the master's response 
to those kind of pathetic excuses. The servant came and reported all these things, verse 21. The master of the house became angry. Of course he did. He prepared all these things. He invited them to come for free. Too busy? And the rejection of his invitation is therefore met with resolute anger and determination. Look how Jesus finishes off this parable, verse 24. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus declares, if you will reject me and my invitation to the heavenly banquet, you can be absolutely sure I will give you what you want. You will have no place in heaven whatsoever. And on Judgment Day, when we turn up with our excuses, there will be nothing that we can say. We will stand in silence, condemned before our judge. But notice also the the lavish generosity of God. Despite this rejection, he is determined that his banquet will be full. And and, and so we we read on. Uh, The master of the house is sent out. Go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The servant said, what you've commanded has been done. Still there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges. Compel people to come in. That my house may be filled. God is determined that even though some will reject, he will gather together a people. He will worship with him at his table for all eternity. And that is where the gospel ends, of course, as Jesus is uh, resurrected from the dead and he sends out his disciples to the ends of the earth to call one and all from every nation to repent to enter in to God's kingdom. Well, what kind of person will not be in? Hard-hearted hypocrite who refuses Jesus, the proud praise seeker, the self-seeking snob, the one with pathetic excuses. Well, more briefly then, what kind of person will be in? The answer is pretty simple, really, isn't it? Nothing else is required except to accept the invitation. And the way that we accept the invitation to enter this heavenly banquet is as we repent, as we, as we turn back to Jesus as the Lord and Saviour of our life, as we, as we confess that we are not worthy to enter in, as we confess that our lives are in a sham with their hypocrisy and selfishness and pride, and we look to Jesus to bring us forgiveness. Now, we'll see that pictured so Beautifully in chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son as he comes back and says, I am sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son in repentance. And he's welcomed back. 
And yet, though heaven is offered to us free of charge, that is not to say that it is cheap. The only reason that we can receive this this free invitation from Jesus to this heavenly banquet is because Jesus has already paid the entry price on our behalf. Uh, Jesus, as you remember, is on a journey to the cross. There on the cross, his blood will be poured out as he bears on himself all the righteous anger of God on our hypocrisy and selfishness and pride. There he dies in our place so that we can be welcomed back by God. You remember Luke 23 as Jesus hangs there on the cross, two criminals, on the, one on the right, one on the left. One mocks him. The other says to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus replied, today you will be with me in paradise. And then they, they both die. No good works, no religious effort, no dinner parties. He receives Jesus' invitation and he's welcomed into the kingdom. What a great hope for sinful people like you and I. Well, as we finish then, what about you? Have you accepted Jesus' invitation? Have you recognized and seen this window into your heart of your shame and your failure and your selfishness and your hypocrisy? And therefore, have you humbly given to Jesus the rightful rule of your life? Well, as you consider that question, uh, let's think just for a moment of the goodness of that invitation. Uh, The greatest uh, wedding banquet that I have ever been to uh, was last year in Singapore. The bride's father owned the largest catering company in Singapore. And so you can imagine the spread was truly amazing. You've never seen the like of it. But the wonder of that banquet with stall after stall of amazing delicacies Well, that just pales into insignificance compared to the heavenly banquet that Jesus prepares for those who trust him. Isaiah 25, death swallowed up forever. No more crying or pain. Dwelling in the presence of God in peace and joy for all eternity. In the presence of God in perfect relationship. That is one banquet that you do not want to miss out on. Second, notice the scope of the invitation. God is determined the banquet tables will be full. And so he gathers together a people for himself from every tribe, nation, language, and and, and people. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter whether you were good or whether you were not. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your home country. Jesus' invitation is for you. Notice the urgency. 
There's no second chances. We must accept his invitation while it's still available because one day it will be too late. And our decision in this life will be irreversible in the next. How stupid it would be to invest in things like like career and money and relationships and allow those things to take us away from Jesus. How foolish. And if we do accept the invitation, the response is that our lives are to be changed as we embrace the character of Jesus who has saved us, living in humble service, living in generosity and love, prioritizing his kingdom above everything, and then going out as his servants to beg others to receive his invitation to. If you died tonight, and Jesus asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The only way to enter is to accept Jesus' invitation by embracing him as our saviour, following him as our Lord. Whatever we do, don't miss this banquet. Drop everything. Drop the excuses. Come while you still can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus Christ that expose to us our selfishness and pride and arrogance. We thank you for showing us how unworthy each one of us are to enter into your kingdom. that We could never do so of our own effort. And so, Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on that cross, bearing our shame and our punishment so that we might be washed clean and we might receive this invitation to your heavenly banquet. Father, we pray that you would help each one of us to respond rightly to push away any excuses that want us to prioritize other things than Jesus, to turn from our pride and our arrogance. Help us to humble ourselves before Jesus. And we do pray that if there are any here this evening that have not yet uh, trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we pray, Father, that in your mercy you would enable them this very evening to turn to Jesus and accept his, his forgiveness and his invitation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.